What is up, my Noggin Notes listening audience? Thank you so much for continuing to download and share our content. At least I hope you're sharing it. <laughs> uh, as I frequently say, it uh, doesn't do any good in my head. Uh, we need to we need to spread this. And today's spreading message, a spreading worthy message, I should say, is from Doug Bursch. He's a pastor up in Seattle area in the northwest part of the United States. And he and I connected a long time ago on Twitter through my pastor who follows him. And his his Twitter messaging is really good. I, I think it's uh, it's intellectual. It provokes a lot of uh, introspection. I think it's straight down the middle for the most part. He obviously has a tilt toward love and compassion and kindness and mercy and grace and forgiveness and all sorts of things that follow the Christian faith. But uh, politically, he he doesn't he doesn't lean one side or the other. What he does is he tries to provoke thought and inspire people to just you know be less nasty to each other. And I appreciate that. He's also got a great podcast that we talk about on here. I'm not going to spoil that. You're going to have to listen to find out what it's called. Anyway, I really enjoyed talking to him. It's it's my first time engaging with the guy, even though I've listened to his podcast for a couple of years now and followed him on social media. And I think you're going to enjoy it too. It's very uplifting and educational and encouraging and um, and and I think thought provoking. So, uh, with that being said, I want to obviously you know pay heed to our sponsors, Zephyr Wellness, my company. That you know w- without the without the employees generating my salary, I wouldn't be able to do things like this because uh, it, it takes an incredible amount of effort to take time away from slugging it out, you know, face-to-face clients, uh, that kind of thing to generate your own revenue. Uh, and I get why most people in my profession don't go out and do podcasts and, you know, community engagement stuff because it, it takes time and time usually means monetary sacrifice. So I don't ever want to take for granted the position that I'm in, the blessings that I've been given by the the people who work for me at Zephyr. And of course, my co-owner, Lindsay Bell, whom I affectionately call my work wife, because she does all the stuff behind the scenes that keeps the company running. So, um, you know, you can support Zephyr by following us on social media. Uh, if you're not in the immediate, you know, northern Nevada area, then uh, just share our content. Uh, that's that's what we're trying to do is, you know, heal people. And we don't care where they live or what their background may be. And this is why we produce the the content that we do through YouTube and Instagram and podcasts like this and the and the Guns and Mental Health podcast from Walk the Talk America. Speaking of Walk the Talk America, if you want to take a free and anonymous mental health screening, you can go to WTTA.org slash love and get yourself screened. It's free, it's confidential, and uh, you can use it as a barometer to see where your, your mind is at any given point in time. So WTTA.org slash love. I uh, sit on the board of Walk the Talk America. I'm the I'm the mental health guy of the guns and mental health <laughs> culture uh, collaboration. So uh, help support us too. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. If you have some loose change in your pocket and you want to you want to donate to help the effort to help people heal and fight suicide, that's a good way to do it. WTTA.org. And then also our actual financial sponsor uh, for every time you go to. Um, uh, audibletrial.com slash noggin notes and do a sign up for a free 30 day trial. We get a little kickback, and of course, you get free audio content for the, the 30 day period. You get one download, and you can keep it even if you cancel your free 30 day trial, but you probably won't because most of us who have signed up for Audible 
actually wind up uh, enjoying their product quite a bit and continuing to download and pay for books that are uh, you, know, you get to keep, but they're they're actually much cheaper than than most uh, paper books that you can buy, whether they're they're hardback or softback. Because audio content is easily replicable and it doesn't require any sort of materials. So if you go to audibletrial.com slash Naganote, sign up for your free 30-day trial, download a free audiobook of your choice, uh, get access to their unmatched content uh, inventory, and you can continue to augment your own intellect and satisfy your curiosities. And that's what we at Naganotes are trying to do. We're trying to feed your noggin. Um, expand your awareness, expand your insights, and bring you closer to peace and joy that uh, you might probably be seeking. Because if you're a human being, you're probably seeking peace and joy. AudibleTrial.com slash Nogginotes, free 30-day trial. Keep the audiobook you download, even if you cancel. ZephyrWinless.org, Walk the Talk America. And without further delay, this is my interview with Pastor Doug Bursch of the fairly spiritual fame. Enjoy. Well, listening audience, here we are with uh, Pastor Doug Bursch from, uh, you're in Seattle, right? Seattle proper? I'm in the Seattle area. I'm actually in a city outside of Seattle, but when you say that, people go, I have no idea who that is. So you say, I'm from Seattle. Right. And you're you're, uh, present with your Mariners hat on. So in true Northwest fashion, you're, uh, you're back on the home team. Love seeing that. Yeah, I know what misery is. I'm a Mariner fan. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'm a Giants fan. We had our heyday for a couple of years there, and now we're back to the cellar dwelling that I grew up with in the '80s. Um, but I, I, I think it's worthwhile telling the listening audience how we connected. So um, I go to church here in the Reno area. I don't think it's a, a secret that I'm a Jesus follower, and um, uh, my pastor here, who's a very good friend of mine, Louis Locke, uh, who has been on the show before, he. Uh, I saw him interacting with you and then I started following you and he recommended, uh, your book. And I, I like your follow on Twitter. It's you, you provoke a lot of thought. You, you invite a lot of balance and harmony in people. It's always uh, very, um, positive, uh, if, if not, you know, cerebral. Um, so I, I just kind of fell in love with what you were saying and you have a podcast called fairly spiritual and that's where I really, got to know like what what your character is because i think if you speak into a microphone uninterrupted people really get a sense of like who you are and um and i found it very compelling because there's some raw honesty that comes out of there uh and anyway i just reached out one day and i was like hey um really like what you're doing and you're like thanks that's cool and then now you're on the show and i can't (laughs) wait to pick your brain on a bunch of things but chiefly what's going on in the world uh, with the pandemic and all that and how people can find inner peace. But I want to know a little bit more about you and your journey so the audience can know who you are. So give a, give a verbal resume or a bio if you want. Oh, I, I've found that I tend to get annoyed with people the more they talk about themselves, but it doesn't mean I won't do it. Um, <laughs> you know, I, uh, when people say they found me on Twitter, I get nervous because Twitter's where I put every thought. So I put my best thoughts and my That's worst good, thoughts though. and the silliest yeah. thoughts. But I think it's to be honest, you know, to mm-hmm. just be who I am. I don't have a brand if that's what you have. It's just me. Uh, and so, uh, and the fairly spiritual, uh, podcast, even that term fairly spiritual is something I use for ministry. If you want to know a little bit, a little bit about me, I pastor a local church. It's a mega church of about 80 people mega. <laughs> and we've been doing it for, oh, like 22 years. I co-pastor with Dan Barron's. Um, and then I do this other stuff that I put under the category of fairly spiritual and it's podcasts and radio shows and books and 
just kind of that, I call it an evangelistic heart, not that I'm trying to get everybody to raise their hands and come to the altar, but it's just the part that's reaching out that doesn't matter whether our church grows. I'm not really interested in the, the growth of my little expression of the kingdom. I just want to use whatever giftings God has placed in my life and express them in whatever context I can that's beneficial uh, to the body of Christ, beneficial to other pastors and leaders and ministers. And so that's my heart. I, I got, um, I, was, I think I can still remember this. I got four kids and uh, two of them, one's in college, one's out of college. Uh, the other two are doing school right now uh, at home around me as I'm in ho- at home as well, you know, that kind of stuff. And that I've been married to my lovely wife for uh, many years. And I'll remember those years uh, if I can remember the date eventually here, but we've been married a while. And so all that to be said is uh, I'm a very happy person and I'm also a very insecure person. So that'll probably come out in our um, conversation as well uh, in the sense that uh, I've always been a very emotional person uh, since I was a little kid. I remember those anxieties. And so I try to be honest about those issues as well. Cause I assume if I'm honest about that, other people will feel less alone because I know that my worth isn't dependent upon my emotional state. So the more I can be honest about that, others might be able to feel okay about who they are. That's really that well good stated. Enough? Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. And it's a perfect segue into discussing what we normally cover on this, on this cast, which is emotional functioning and mental well-being, and uh, learning to live at peace and also living authentically and congruently and transparently and consistently mm-hmm. so that people know who you are and where you stand. Uh, because I think the more we can be authentic and anchored and consistent, the less anxieties will provoke in others and certainly within ourselves. And I appreciate the honesty there you know, saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an insecure person. I'm also an emotional person. I don't think people like to talk like that, especially dudes, right? Dudes in our culture don't like to talk like that. Yeah. Well, isn't that funny? We have this idea of masculinity that it's hiding your reality or only expressing certain parts of your reality. Mm-hmm. But I was taught by my father, uh, whatever that term masculinity is, at some level, it should be authenticity. And so it's if you're comfortable with who you are, then you're comfortable with sharing who you are. If you think, if you're worried about your worth and how other people view you, then you're only going to present certain parts of your life. So I think ultimate, whatever manly manliness is, would be just to be yourself and to know that by expressing that, that doesn't change your value or your worth or your ability to function in the world. Isn't it interesting? We, we get this idea of masculinity on some sort of continuum um, but with the way that you just stated, it, maybe maybe human human people are on a continuum of masculine or feminine or whatever those constructs may be. But the way that you just phrased that, it's like being strong in oneself is. I mean, we could call that masculine, I suppose. But it, but whatever manifests is just you, right? And yeah. isn't, isn't that really what we want? We want we want people to be them and not pretend to be something else or only show parts of themselves. And, well, I actually think the people who talk a lot about masculinity and what's wrong with men not being masculine enough, it's often an overcompensation for something they lacked in their childhood. Now, mm-hmm. that might not, not always be the case, but because they maybe didn't have healthy relationships with a, a, a male figure, then they overcompensate and look to kind of the fictions of our culture. They look to the John Waynes and the movies, and we know movies are exaggerations. They're not even sure. the truth. That's not how the world actually functions. But they find those, the warrior you know, movie they saw, whatever it is, the superhero thing. And then they co-opt that form of masculinity and say that's what true masculinity is. Uh, sadly, I, I don't think that's where we should be getting our models of masculinity. Probably we should talk to people who had healthy relationships with their father, 
uh, healthy, you know, relationships with their sons or daughters, you know, just healthy family dynamics, and then see how someone expresses themselves in those environments. And what you'll find, it's less polarized and binary and all these things that we see um, in those talks about what real men are and how to be a real man. What does the Bible say about masculinity? I'm really curious on your take on this, because we, we don't we don't cover a lot of uh, spirituality religion in this podcast. A lot of it's very esoteric, psychological focus. But I'd, I'd like to know what like what Jesus says about masculinity is, does he say anything? Well, I always, this is one of the things I struggle with because I was raised in a home where that just wasn't even talked about. You're just supposed to follow Jesus. And the assumption is as you make room for Jesus, uh, your best self will be revealed in Christ. So that concept at some form, even saying, you know, what does the Bible say about masculinity? It's almost starting from this legalistic idea of identity formation. It's that, mm. okay, first I need to find the laws of what a man is, and then I need to teach those laws, and then you need to follow those laws to be a real man. Well, I don't think that's the relational reality of Christianity. The relational reality is Christ in me formed me into a new creation, and through following the Spirit's leading, I find out what natural giftings I have within me, my natural identity, and also God can impart to me strengths that I don't have in the midst of my weakness. But if I come into someone and say, you know, this is what a real man does, I'm putting a law on them. You know, it might be true for that person that a real man for them is they like to eat a lot of meat and go hunting. But if I put that on someone, that's legalism. And if someone's only doing it because somebody else told them to do it, so I don't think the Bible talks much about that. And in fact, a lot of the stories of masculinity in the Bible are not for, you know, men doing what we would consider manly things or often very destructive things, you know, sexual affairs, rapes, uh, um, violence, wars, disobedience to God, arrogance, pride, you know, the things that we sometimes will put on that spectrum. It's not limited to men, but those right. realities uh, so even there, when we take somebody and we say, this is what a real man is, what David did here, well, we can go in another place where David did something and go, Ugh, no man should ever do that. So even that doesn't make sense to just pick parts of masculine, what we would call masculine expressions in those you know, environments. I, I just think it's legalism. So I don't think the Bible says much about it except for let Christ be Christ in you. And then your biology and all that stuff comes into play, your nature and your nurture. It seems like um, it's a very scary concept to let anything uh, just blossom in oneself because it, it begets an idea of losing control or at least handing control over to that mm -hmm. other thing, mm -hmm. right? And I think what our culture largely has taught us in recent times, I'd say maybe even the last three or four generations, especially with the, you know, the, the, the advent, and I don't know if it's the advent, it's been around for a little longer than that, but but certainly the explosion of Western medicine, like solving problems, and you know, you're know, you not allowed to be sick, and if you are sick, we'll cure you from the sickness quickly, and, uh, and oh, by the way, we'll keep you alive as long as possible, and nobody's allowed <laughs> to die, and, um, and, and, and it begets this idea of certainty, and predictability, and, and, um, and wanting to know things, and have outcomes. Well, handing power over, handing control over to a, to a Christ figure, or to, mm -hmm. to anything that's not tangible it seems very frightening i think to a lot of people and i don't know that it's an exercise very easily um executed what do you say to the the idea that people may be clutching really tightly to their ideological beliefs or their or their legalism or the or just the the stuff that's been pushed into their heads by their their voices of authority parents and so forth from their lives like how do you how do you get people to let go of that and step into not knowing well i don't know <laughs> <laughs> Well, come on, you lead a church, a mega church. 
I wish I did. You know, when people talk about controlling pastors and I'm like, I, I don't know how to be one of those. I've tried, but yeah. <laughs> I can't seem to control anyone. You know, I, it's interesting because even if you're not, uh, let's say a Christian, uh, the concept of just trusting that identity is formed in community, that's a tough one, right? And I mm. found that also with, with masculinity issues that sometimes people, they don't even allow their spouse to inform their identity. They don't allow their children to inform their identity. They just have this, this is who I am and what I believe. But uh, I think that we are human in community, right? So the idea is I don't know who I really am completely outside of entrusting my heart and my care to someone else. And, and again, they don't control my identity, but identity is formed by the people who love us and the people that we love. And so, you know, that idea, that's a faith step, isn't it? To trust yeah. that as I uh, open myself up to someone else. Now, what happens, I think, is people who came out of environments where they couldn't trust those in authority, where it's very hard then to leave an environment like where you had a manipulative father, a manipulative mother, or just, you know, where your identity wasn't valued, your opinions weren't valued, your what happens with people like that, sometimes they form a really strong opinion and they see everything else as the same threat. So when right. the kids disagree with them and they're like, well, this is my house and not your house, you know, they're really talking back to that time when they didn't have control and power. So even with their kid, they're worried about their kid taking their power or their control or they're worried about a spouse taking their control. And, and there are, you know, people who can abuse the situations where people can harm you if you yield to them. So there is a discernment of where do I set boundaries and those sorts of things. But even there, you can't learn those boundaries without trusting. And some people don't want to be hurt. So they just set everything, you know, this is what I believe and this is who I am and take it or leave it kind of idea. And you know, you know that like with American art, American marriage, it's the idea of make sure you know who you are and what you believe and who your friends are. So in case you get divorced, you'll be the same person. You know, just yeah. hold on to who you are as you go into that marriage. And I don't think that's what marriage is. And I don't even think that's what friendships are. The best friends that we have formed us. They changed our perspective on life. Or they found things in us that we didn't even see. So I don't know if that answers the question. I like to go all in every direction. But you know that through following me through Twitter. So that's your fault if I do anything wrong here. But I, I just think that's a huge issue that whether you trust God to lead you or God in others, which I would think that's how God, you know, every person being made in the image of God can I trust that God is leading me or truth is leading me through another person? That's a faith step, isn't it? It's just something you do and then you see the fruit of it. It's, it's letting go and it's vulnerability. And, and I like your point about not wanting to invite more pain in because vulnerability comes with risk and you know, risk of what pain, who wants more pain? Uh, even right. people who haven't experienced a ton of it. We, I think we inherently know that if we open ourselves up, you know, it's, you know, metaphorically, even animals do it. We roll over and show our belly, you know, that's like, yeah. that's, that's how you get hurt. Um, and, and I think it's only through those painful experiences, which are temporary, by the way, um, that we learn where to set boundaries the next time. The problem is when we set boundaries that are so rigid that we don't let anybody in. And then we, we also avoid happiness and, mm. and joy. Um, I, I have my own ideas about why it's so scary uh, but but what are what are some of yours on why why we don't do that more frequently? Well, what you start? What do you, why do you believe it's so scary? What's the? Well, I think because it, it, it looking inward, even if it's a re, based on reflections of other people, right? Uh, looking inward invites the idea that you are capable of more than you realize, and that can mm. be great and terrible. And that and if you if you look that deep, 
the great invites great potential, uh, potentially falling, you know, if you don't, if you, if you don't achieve your goals, but also the idea of sustained success, you know, the pressures that come with that and that kind of thing. But if you look at the terrible, it means you have to acknowledge potentially all the the judgmental things that you've said about other people that you yourself Mm -hmm. are capable of. And I don't know that anybody wants to go there. So, so it's easier just to set walls and, you know, hide behind them and, and um, pretend that you know all that there is to know about oneself. Now, I've thought a lot about this, the assessment of oneself. There is a personality reality where some people do not have as much inner dialogue. They're just, what they're thinking is what they're thinking. And sometimes we call the conscience really that inner dialogue where, and I'm like that every one thing I think, I think of the opposite thing of that. And so that allows me to assess a lot of things, which can have a strength to it. It can also be negative that I don't just have contentment. I'm just not doing the thing. I'm thinking, well, I could do that thing or I could do this thing. And I think some people are even in marriages like that. I'm sorry to keep going to the marriage side, but I I feel like some people, they have a spouse. It's just pretty much what they see, what they think, what they, they don't do a lot of assessing about what's good or bad. And it's not that they're immoral. It's just the way their biology is. The other person who's constantly assessing, how can we grow in our marriage? How can we do this? How can we do with the kids? And so you see those battles and those people need to be together. And in fact, the person who assesses things all the time tends to end up with someone who doesn't because they need that in their life. And the person who doesn't assess things much needs someone who's actually processing it. So we need to understand that reality. But to me, one of the reasons we don't look at our inner life, the other reason is worth. And if you don't have a sense of your own worth, and we tend to think like everyone has the same amount of worth, but we don't. So I have to be, I mean, we do in Christ, but we don't feel that worth. So I have to be careful if I judge someone else, like why won't that person assess their life? Well, they might not assess their life because if they see a failing or a fault or a weakness, their worth crumbles. Their identity crumbles. They feel like a bad person. They feel like, you know, a terrible person that God hates them. They hate themselves. Some of us have been around people like that where they just can't be wrong because their entire worth just falls apart. Now, one of the reasons I think I'm able to assess my strengths and weaknesses masculinity not be threatened if you say well that doesn't seem very masculine or whatever and then I think hmm, I wonder what that means because I have this worth that I believe that regardless of how I look at my life my worth doesn't dissipate I believe I'm in the center of God's grace and the center of his love and anything I discover about myself won't change God's love for me or my identity in God that my worth no one can remove that worth and when you believe that then you're willing to look at faults in our life. So I think that's one of the reasons, and I'm sure you deal with this with people, is until they know that their worth isn't dependent upon whether they've done it right or wrong up to this point, it's pretty hard to get them to look at what they've done that's wrong. But once you can say, hey, not only is is your worth not going to dissipate, you're actually going to see your worth and your value and who you truly are when you allow yourself to see the things you've done wrong or the things you could do better or whatever, the strengths, the weaknesses, those sorts of things. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges we're facing with people is how can you look or get someone to look at their sins, their failings, their faults, growth areas, if they believe their worth is so tied to being right. Even internet arguments are like that. They 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 literally feel like they cannot give an inch because if they give an inch, they're wrong. And they wouldn't say this, but I think they feel this way with their anger. If I'm wrong, it means I'm a bad person. And when I'm a, if I'm a bad person, then I feel bad about myself. So to be a good person, 
I'm always right. Sadly, what does that do? If, you, if you're always right, you become a bad person in the sense of that you begin to harm others because no person is always right. All right. You're touching on a bunch of psychological concepts there too. One is the concept of internal versus external locus of control. Like where do we mm. get our sense of um, control over the environment and how we respond to it? If you're constantly looking externally to define uh, motivations, uh, behavior, you know, justifications for behaviors, or like you're, you're touching on self-worth, and those things are temporary and fleeting, they can go away and leave you with a, without worth of course. Mm. Um, but then that begets a conversation about self-efficacy versus self-esteem. Self-efficacy are the things that can never be taken away. Um, you know, a job well done or an accomplishment or uh, acquisition of knowledge. And and self-esteem usually varies. It, it, it goes mm. up and down based on you know circumstances. So what we want to do is we want to we want to get a good solid sense of internal locus of control, that sense of internal self that's not predicated on the things that are potentially fleeting, like in you know your haircut or your, your, your clothing or your shiny car or your not shiny mm-hmm. car or whatever it is, um, because those things can, can go away. And instead, focus in on the things that we, we can't ever lose. And now, the, the razor's edge there, of course, is that we've done some things that we probably aren't proud of, too. There's, there's things for which we're, you know, we're not... Uh, proud and and possibly ashamed. And that raises the uh, implication of where we direct our attention. So we can have good self-esteem based on good self-efficacy if we are reflecting on the things that nobody can take away, like the the positive ones I listed. Or we can have really bad self-esteem from bad self-efficacy focusing on the things that we've done wrong and all the ills that we've uh, committed. Um, But overall, I think, too, is the idea that if we... If we at least notice this stuff and we notice where we're paying attention, then we can be not so attached to the outcomes, the, the tangible things, like the being right. Mm-hmm. You know, the, uh, my, my friend and mentor, Christian Conti, regularly says, you know, would you rather be right or would you rather be happy? And mm-hmm. happiness, I think, is one of those core 10 emotions that you know, invites vulnerability. And if you have to acknowledge that you're wrong, what you're really doing is letting go of the idea that, that you're right. And if you've if you practice so long holding on to an idea so tightly that you you can't separate what you think from who you are, now you've got a real issue with letting go of the idea affects your self efficacy, it affects your internal locus of control, and it affects your potentially your identity. And if you if you have to acknowledge that you're wrong, then it threatens who you are as a matter of identity. And I don't think anybody wants to be left without an identity. So, mm. so you know, in the mm. Twitter sphere, it's like, hey, I think you might be wrong about this. Here's some facts that might prove it. Um, uh, and then they go, ah, I can't be wrong because who would I be if without this assertion yeah. that I'm wrong? Or that I I'm should right. be on your show more often because I feel like I'm getting some free counseling here. So I'm going to just keep scheduling <laughs> myself to <laughs> more podcasts, more podcasts. Just I'll give you very specific topics. Yeah, you know, just be like, yeah. you want to talk about that. I'm just going to try to get that's really good stuff. Well, like I know for me, sometimes people want to escape who they are. You know, they want to, if I just didn't feel that way, if I just wasn't so insecure, but I think probably the best step for all of us is just awareness of that. Mm. I mean, I'd like it if some of that stuff was mm-hmm. just taken away and I <laughs> certainly can work towards, but I've found some of the things within me, they don't really go away. I don't know how hardwired they are, but I also can say, but that's not necessarily reality. I might feel a certain way. Uh, like for me, I don't like conflict. And uh, so I try to make people happy. And I do a lot of loving things 
to make people happy and not to have conflict. But the motivation for me loving them is not necessarily love. Uh, it's not just because I want to love this person. It's I don't want to have conflict because conflict means that the world's going to fall apart. The conflict means uh, I'm in a bad place. And until the conflict goes away, I won't feel peace. And so I can do a lot of Christian loving things. Let's say as a pastor, you know, there's conflict, say the right thing. You know, wow, you're so caring and kind. And But I'm not just doing that for kindness and caring's sake. I'm doing it because I need this conflict removed because I have pain as long as the conflict's occurring. Well, the problem with pastoring that way is you're always going to have conflict and there's always going to be pain. And even when you help people, you just have fear that another conflict's going to come and another conflict. So the trajectory of me in ministry was a lot of fear because I realized no matter how I pastored, I couldn't avoid conflict. Well, I had to come to this realization and have to come to this realization that that's in me. That when conflict occurs, immediately I have this anxiety that's not really rational to the conflict. That might not go away, but I don't have to act from that place. I don't have to act out of that place. So that means, for me, it means practical things. And I co-pastor with Dan Barons, who helps me with this. When there's a conflict, I immediately want to solve it. Call the person up. Sure. And, and it's not because I care about them. I do, but I want to get away from this pain as soon as possible. Well, that's not always the best thing to do. And so Dan will have to say, well, why don't we just wait and pray and let them process it and you process it. And immediately I know what he's saying. He's saying, Doug, I, I love you. I understand this is a concern, but right now you're reacting out of your, you don't want this conflict. It's not about the situation. So to me, that's about, I don't like it. If you gave, if you told me something I did wrong, I'll feel bad. I'll feel like a bad person. I'm not a bad person, but I will feel like that. So I need to make sure that my first response isn't defensiveness and how dare you. Instead, it's waiting, listening, thanking you, understanding what the relationship is, the reason you're saying something. You know, And then also being okay with the fact that I might feel bad, but that doesn't mean reality has changed, that that will go away. As I think you said earlier, it's temporary. This won't <laughs> be forever, even though it feels like forever. So that's a part of assessment. People don't even want to go through that. They don't want to have the feeling that they have, you know, they don't want to feel that way. So they just avoid any possibility of even having to, you know, come to that reality. I, I'm so glad you said that because you, you affirmed what I've been saying for a lot of years, which is that people don't want to be in others distress. Um, largely it's, it's, it's due to not being able to tolerate one's own distress, although not all the mm. time. And I see this in group work when, you know, somebody starts to get tearful, the person next to him almost invariably reaches over and puts a hand on the thigh and says, yeah, they're there, it'll be okay. And it's not about wanting to sue them. It's about not wanting to be in somebody else's distress. Yes. Um, or we jump right to problem solving, right? Like you mentioned, like, did you hire an attorney? <laughs> like, did you file a police report? Uh, so we're, we're giving them logical issues that hit the wrong part of the brain. If somebody is in limbic mode, uh, and they're emotionally flooded, logic really is shut down. It's not going to work. So they're not going to receive that instruction anyway. Um, we have to validate that. And validation takes uh, tolerance. It takes distress tolerance and being able to push through those uncomfortable times mm. so that then we can enter into their lives and, if invited, uh, then possibly guide them. 
And so I really appreciate you saying that because, you know, sometimes I think I'm out here like, you know, talking into the wind. Like, does anybody know what I'm saying? <laughs> that is so good. And that's what happens in social media sometimes is that people when you when I post something general, like I don't go to people specifically and say, what's wrong with you, buddy? Right. And I maybe I've done that a couple of times with a politician, but for the most part. I just say general things. And sometimes people will take it really personal, which I can get that because my generality touches in on a very personal part of their life. But often they're processing their own pain with that. You know, if I share my weaknesses, like it's weird. I'll even share anxieties and people will tell me what to do. Like this is the, this is the one that drives me crazy. And you can tell me if I'm wrong on this. But I don't think we should tell people that they should go to counseling or psychiatric care every time they express a weakness through social media. But this is what I found. Amen. When I post something like saying, I've been feeling really anxious lately, people will try to help me by saying, you need to go to counseling. Now, again, that's, I I recommend people to counseling. Family members, there's different areas where I've gotten social help and mental help. But I think if we want a culture where people are more willing to express themselves, then we want to actually not shut those things down by saying, well, that's really unnormal. That's really unhealthy. We don't tell people who don't talk about their emotional life to go to counseling. We just leave them alone. So we have people talking about their emotional life that we say, well, there's a real problem with you. The people who don't talk about their emotional life, we don't say anything. Well, why do we do that? Because there's a distress in our own life. We don't want to deal with that because we're not being honest about our life. We're not talking about our insecurities, our anxieties. And so it's like, go speak to the professional don't mess with my Twitter because my Twitter is just about this. It's just about, you know, things that don't have me touch into the core of who I am. That's not always that case. And sometimes you recommend counseling, but if we want to facilitate healthy environments, we need to let people <coughs> share stuff and say, thank you for sharing that. And now if they say, how can I be helped? Then you can say, Hey, you know, maybe do this. And it's just such a shame too, that we, we are in that spot. And I don't think, I don't think social media created that. I think, I think honestly our profession created that because mm-hmm for you know 40,000 years of uh homo sapien development we um we managed to make it <laughs> you know like yeah. w- with the same 10 emotions the same distresses in the environment you know back back when we were all cavemen and cave ladies it was you know predator attacks and climate change and nowadays it's you know uh catching flights and making meetings on time but the the point is that like until 120 150 years ago we didn't even exist as a profession, and yet somehow humanity made it. Uh, yeah. and, and the way we made it was through community. We connected through community. We leaned on each other, and we expressed, and we got through. And, and you know, we can talk about different ways that appeared and, you know, right and wrong. But the point is we did it. And now I think, you know, to your point, like people start expressing themselves, and you're like, oh, man. I really wanted you to express yourself and get in touch with your emotions, but not like that, not in front of me. Like, uh, go go into the profession that hides itself in the shadows, please, and get off my radar. Uh, and oh, by the way, don't die on the inside either. Uh, but really, that's what I would prefer is just for right. you not to share right. anything. And then, and then you're shutting people down when you do. People are shutting people down with that. I believe in counseling and psychotherapy and any kind of way to find health. And it doesn't have to be a Christian counselor. I mean, I just believe health is health. And but I, I, I think about the reality is we want more vulnerable environments, but I found this people say, you know what I want is an authentic pastor who's just honest and transparent. And people actually don't No, they don't no. want that because one, when you share your weaknesses, uh, people use them against you. And another, it, people want the pastor, some, some people, not everybody, they want the pastor to be something they're not something they're working towards. It's their projection. Of right. What they want and when you, you say, 
no, I struggle with the same thing you struggle with. Then there's no escape. Then there's no, well, in the future, I'll be better or in the, you know, it's just right now, what am I going to do for my spiritual health? And like, I would share with people, like, I don't like being around people. Um, and I'll say that in my At church. All. I'll say, <laughs> I said, I don't really like being around people. I didn't become a pastor to have more friends. Now people think, well, how rude of you? Well, that's actually me. I don't even like that about myself. Maybe I should, but I don't, I feel bad about it. But that's how I feel. If you say, hey, come to the small group, I feel, oh, I don't want to go there. So I could lie to the church and not tell them that and say, a good Christian goes to small groups and this and that, and you should do that too. But I think it's more honest to say, you know, I don't like being around people, uh, but it's good for me to be around people. So by faith, I do stuff that I don't want to do, but it's good for me. I found it to be good for me. It also hurts me sometimes, but it's it's important that to me is a much more honest thing. But if you share like a weakness or then others like, well, you shouldn't be a pastor and you need to go to your supervisor and don't tell me that. And other pastors will even say that. Well, don't share that weakness with people, only share it with other pastors. Well, then I then they're not seeing me in Christ. They're just seeing a presentation of Christ. And Christ sees all of me when he called me. I understand there's boundaries, you know, share some personal things, but yeah, I want people to know that, that I'm at church right now, not because I want to be, but because I know I'm supposed to be. And so if I ask them to maybe talk to someone, I'm not asking as someone who doesn't know their pain. <laughs> so I, I don't know if that goes along with that, but I, I just, to me, it's, we need to facilitate environments where you see the real person. And if you quickly give advice on what that person should do, they'll immediately shut down sometimes. Or if you're really not connecting with them and you're trying to connect and say, oh, I understand what that is. I got help through doing this. Then they feel more alone than ever. There's nothing more lonely than sharing who you are and someone saying, oh, I know exactly what you're going through and they don't remotely know what you're going through. Yeah. So we got to be really careful not to do all that stuff. Yeah, I spent a lot of time talking about the difference between experiential comparison and emotional comparison. Emotions mm. don't change human to human. Experiences do. And um and so that's that's why it doesn't work to say, I understand. And at a bare minimum, people kind of just shut down. Like you say, at a maximum, they they really retaliate. How the hell you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> uh, you didn't ever blah, 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 fill in the blank. Yeah. And, you're like, and yeah. so if we start to go that direction, you go, well, I guess I can never connect with anybody at all because we all have unique experiences. Uh, so instead we go, we go to the emotion. What's it, what's it like for you? What, man, that must suck. Oh man, what a great surprise. You know? And, um, and then we, we can really connect, but to your point about the, the authenticity and the vulnerability and the honesty, um, I think what's, what's really a shame. There's, there's an article I read, I don't know, some time ago, cause it all blends together <laughs> these days. Uh, it was, it had to do with like, uh, the, the paradox or the toxicity or whatever the adjective was of, uh, politeness. And, and it was like, you know, the, the scourge of politeness or whatever it was called. And the idea was that in our efforts to be polite and sensitive and, um, and try to somehow predict what everybody's sensitivities are, we're failing to be authentic. And when and in our failures to be authentic, all we do is become either projector screens for other people's projections to be something that we can't be, or we project our own stuff out in an effort to try to be things that people we think people need us to be. But no matter what, we end up talking past each other, and we don't end up actually connecting in human connectivity we're not we're not bringing life and light to people through vulnerability we're bringing artificial representation 
which then begets more artificial representation. We end up just kind of swirling around one another rather than really integrating. And I think that's really harming our communities. And I see, I see it in social media a lot, but I also see a lot of benefit from social media because it's somewhat artificial, because you don't have to do the eyeball-to-eyeball vulnerability, and yet it's an avenue to express some things that maybe you couldn't do otherwise because of time or convenience or whatever. So, you know, I, I really struggle with that. Um, mm. and, I, and I want I wanted to give uh, kudos to, to my pastor who I aforementioned, uh, Louis Locke, because he's very open and honest about some of his struggles in, in the congregation. And, and the things are taped, like they're on Facebook Live, so he can't run away from them even if strangers right. are watching. Right. And, and I think what that does now, instead of modeling artificiality, he's modeling authenticity. And then it, and then it invites people like me to go, ooh, maybe I can be authentic too. Because if the mm-hmm. guy standing up on the stage with the plastic podium or whatever is, you know, uh, is doing it, I probably could do it too and survive. You know, you, you got something there of politeness. I, this is one of the things I've struggled. I have a book coming out in April called Posting Peace, Why Social Media Divides Us and What We Can Do About It. And one of the things I have to be careful with is I, I really can't judge things at face value, that most things are about the intentions. True. And that's the thing. Like, I believe the fruit of the Spirit is kindness, right? But the intention of my kindness is a big issue. Am I being kind to be dismissive? Uh, to be paternalistic, to, you know, condescending? Uh, or am I being kind because I'm trying to bring the kingdom of God to someone and bring reconciliation where they grow in love with God and that we grow a closer relationship? And so I think that's the issue about, you know, some people say, well, I'm just telling it like it is. Well, the question I have is, why are you telling it like it is? And are you telling it like it is because you are angry, you want to hurt somebody, you're defensive, or are you telling it like it is because you genuinely love someone? And, and did, uh, did anybody ask? Right. Well, that's the other one, right? Or, or even there, you know, I know as a pastor, I can tell people truth, but if they're not ready to receive it, it, it ain't going to work at all, right? And now sometimes you're just supposed to say it because they're not ready to receive it. You know, they're out the door and you're like, hey, you know, you're going to destroy your relationships if you keep, you know, <laughs> you, you got, you know, it's an intervention. You, yeah. You're an addict. Yeah. <laughs> the, the interventions are interventions for a reason. But even there, you can't have the intervention unless the person at least some level knows that you're someone who loves them and cares about them and you want the best for them, whether they're willing to say it's for this area that I want the best for them. So, that to me is the big issue because in that book I put, I can't judge people online. You know, some people are going to be more aggressive, more where I can even think causing conflict, but they may have a calling for justice and for different things that I don't know. I don't know. For me, I can ask them this question though, is your motivation reconciliation? And I'm not talking about reconciliation, just you know, racial reconciliation, but is your motivation that people would be drawn closer to God and that we'd have a more holistic community, uh, one one with another. And sometimes you got to cause conflict to do that. That's the issue. Other people, they're just saying angry things. They don't care about God. They don't care about other people. They're just living for their own flesh in the sense of whatever they feel. They're just going to put it out there. And as long as they feel good about it, they're fine with it. You know, take it or leave it. So that that is an issue. Politeness. What's the problem with politeness? Is you sometimes never know the person. And that's the part I don't. I want to know who you are. I don't want to know like a fiction and pastors can do that where you're like, you never know the guy, like he uses a different voice or she uses a different voice and you never feel like you actually see the person. Now, if you see the person and they're kind of a little arrogant to me, that's okay. As long as I saw the person, 
But if I see someone who's, oh, we're really concerned about that and they're polite with me, but then they're cussing at me in a, a board meeting somewhere else, right. that's the concern, right? So for me, authenticity is a huge thing that I want to know how I stand with someone. You know, even in this, you know, uh, show here, if you didn't like me, I wouldn't want you to treat me well. And then later say, oh, that was, the guy was just terrible. You know, I at some level want to be able to have that interaction, even if it'd be painful, at least I'd be having one interaction. Then what, is, what are we all struggling with in social media? Is this really what the person thinks and who thinks this? And what do I think? You know, we're, we don't even know who the person is or what the reason for these things are. And that's true in churches and other places as well. You're, you're, uh, you're making really good points there. And um, what one that I really want to hover on is, we touched on it earlier about if you're consistent and authentic, it tells everybody else where you are. Right. Um, and I think that helps to calm people's interactions with you, even if they may not like it because it, it hurts or it's, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it doesn't align with what their expectations are for you. Um, it at least lets them know where you are. And I think that's really tough for people to do along with the intentionality. That's my favorite word in counseling, by the way, is intentionality. Mm. Um, the, the spirit of knowing why you do what you do. So if we can for those who are playing counseling bingo, yes, intentionality yes. has been spoken. You can be, put be a six, chip on the square. Yeah. Uh, intentionality, acting with that spirit really alleviates a lot of um, unfortunate outcomes because you're, you're acting based on what you think you, you will happen with some reasonable predictability as opposed to acting out of reflexiveness and mm-hmm. just simply to the environment. Um, if, if we pull all this together, what we're really asking people to do is be almost neutral, you know, like you can have your passions and be non-attached to them. Um, knowing that things are fleeting and temporary and, you know, if God comes into your life and gives you one thing, another thing will probably invariably go away. There's trimming of, of uh, vines and, and all sorts of things that promote growth through loss. And, and I think maintaining, maintaining that, that neutral, non-attached, uh, state is very, very hard in a culture that competes for attention, throws instant gratification at us, commands us to take up, you know, sides and stripes and encampments and so on and so forth. My question to you, because I'm very, very curious about this. I think, I think I've like, I'm, I'm really wrestling through it. I think I'm getting pretty close, but what, what do you say to people who are not necessarily extremists because extremists can are pretty tough to reach, but people who are pretty rigid in their views, they're maybe righteously idealizing them. Um, but really that's not, that's not Jesus. That's not, that's not the soul of, of divinity within them. Um, it's more of, you know, of the culture and of man than it is of spirit. How do you, how do you help people let go and trust that the, immediate gratification, the, the political wins, we can talk politics and how they really don't apply to, to Christ also. How do you help them stay in that, like, uh, elevated eyeball state, I guess, you know, not get so sucked into the, into the morass of, mm. of mud flinging. I was going to say, I do it poorly. Um, I, I thought you did it well, actually. I mean, I've seen some posts from you and I was well, like, well, yeah, yeah, you know, that I, the, you know that that's my, right you know, that's my goal for me. I've been called to reconciliation in the sense of, I want every communication. And when I say every, that's probably not true, but this is what I would like it to be is that anything I do opens people up to be drawn closer to God 
and that anything I do makes it so that me and that individual can have a closer relationship. Uh, that to me is what reconciliation is, you know, breaking down the dividing walls of hostility. Um, in the context, I think we're all struggling. I have been in tears about the state of the Christian church in our current political climate. And uh, I don't really know what to do. You know, I think many people feel that way. And I need to say that because I, I still do stuff, but I can feel like I just don't understand uh, what's going on. And people would say, well, we'll explain that. I don't think you need me to explain it. I think you do know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I just have to assume that some level people do know that. But to me, one of the ways I've helped, let's say in the political sense, is we need to differentiate between what is partisan and what is political. Everybody's political. There's nothing wrong with being political. Mm, you know, our, our, you know, I have an opinion about things. And, and also in our democracy as a citizen, you know, in First and Second Timothy and Titus, Paul talks about being a good citizen. And so to be a good citizen is to be an informed citizen. Um, it's to participate in the processes of your land, to be blameless with outsiders. So as much as we can to try to be the best servant, the best, you know, Paul's often giving instructions to the people who are, don't have as much authority in the culture, uh, to, the, to the slave, to women, to the youth, to people who aren't given any power or authority. And, and I don't want to get into all that, but I actually think he's often validating those, those roles in those places. But he ultimately says, you know, Christ is going to offend people as it is. So try to be the best citizen you can be. And Christ knows what justice is. And Christ knows where you've been sinned against. And Christ will ultimately be justice. Uh, so in that context, for me, partisan is this. Partisan is I want my side to win and your side to lose. Partisan is you go away. <laughs> partisan is this is America and you're not America. The goal of partisanship is not reconciliation. Now, you can be you know affiliated with a party but a nonpartisan, a reconciling attitude would be, I communicate my politics because I love you. And I think you might be in the wrong. And I think what you're doing is actually separating you from God and separating us from each other. So, or even if we disagree, my goal is that my political opinions won't keep us from truly having communion with each other and communion with God. And so everything I communicate, even really passionate, difficult things that people will disagree with and feel really close to our identity the reason I'm communicating it is not so I can get 51% of the vote or 50.5% of the vote and you lose and I win. Not so I can get control of the Supreme Court or whatever those things are. It's so that I can be Christ to you. And I can also make room for you to be Christ to me. And anything that is good and right and pure that images God for me to welcome that in you. And some Christians do not see the difference. They see truth is truth, and I'm just communicating my truth, and I'm right and you're wrong. Um, it's not about who's right or who's wrong. It's about who's reconciling. And we can be with people who agree with us but do not have the goal of reconciliation. They can agree with every point we have, but their goal is actually to murder those who disagree with them. And if anything with Jesus' ministry, it's that. It wasn't that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were terrible people doing terrible things. It was, again, their goal was not the ministry of reconciliation, that the grace of God would be extended to all. It was more like, hey, some people get more than others because they've lived more righteous lives than others, and they communicated the truth for the purposes of making these dividing lines of who's spiritual and who isn't spiritual, who gets the kingdom, who doesn't get the kingdom. And Jesus confronted that so they could say the same words Jesus was saying, but they were saying them for the wrong reasons. And that's the part to me that that's where 
if you believe in the demonic, if you believe in spiritual footholds, if you believe in oppression, that's how Satan is going to twist things. It's to give you the same content, but for the wrong reasons. And that's what's been so sad about politics is, you know, we have people who their pope is Tucker Carlson or their pope is, they, they are literally getting their spiritual marching orders from people who their goal is not reconciliation, from talk show hosts that build their show completely around just uniting far-right people, our far-right left people, even, you know, if it's Rachel Maddow or whatever it is, if you're, if you're just saying, that's my gospel, and you can't differentiate, then we're in trouble. So to me, that's the dialogue I'm trying to have with people, is I'm not trying to attack your political opinions, but I'm asking you about your motivations, and are you motivated out of love and a sincere desire to help someone? Or are you motivated by justifying yourself, making sure your side wins and their side loses? And I think if people are honest in answering that question, they'll realize that they've been co-opted into a lot of things that are anti-Christ. Do you think that, I, I just don't believe yeah. the kingdom of God advances that way. I just it cannot advance truth cannot advance with an anti-Christ spirit or with a spirit that's contrary. You know, the truth can't advance without character. Do you, do you think too, people are, I don't want to say this too broadly, it's like, do you, do you think people are too far gone? But it's like, <laughs> I can't, I know some of the people you're talking about, and it, and, it, and they believe truly deeply in their heart of hearts that pointing to some some words in the in the New Testament that and and justifying their actions with them is moving the kingdom forward. How how do you help somebody understand that? Because because that's a, that almost begets a right versus wrong conversation too. Or it's like you know no you're you're actually quite wrong in this. It's it's quite violent to be doing what you're doing because you're you're invalidating others who don't believe what you believe. How do how do we? Well, do here I'll just, it, this might offend people. <clears throat> I'm always trying to figure out the level at which I need to express myself. Um, Go for it. I get repeatedly called a baby murderer because I think there are instances where you shouldn't vote for the Republican candidate. And because, well, Republicans are against abortion and Democrats are for abortion. And and I, I'm, I'm not happy with how the abortion debate has expressed itself politically. <clears throat> However, I think even if you want to make changes, you're not going to make changes by just aligning yourself with one party who doesn't really have to do anything for you. You know, there's just an aspect of that politically that doesn't make sense. But another thing is, I'll just talk about this reality. Now, some people are going to be offended with this, but hear this. This is my issue with abortion. I, I think abortion is wrong. I also know that in every church, we have women who've had abortions, people we love, our friends. I've pastored enough to, to know people that I deeply love and respect who had abortions. And whether they regretted that or not, they exist in our communities. And when someone says something like, we need to outlaw abortion, I'm like, oh, okay, so are we going to throw your friends in jail? Are we going to throw them in jail for life because it's murder? And they're like, well, no. And I go, so what are we going to do? Well, we're not going to do anything to them. We're just going to do it to the doctors. And then what you, what you realize is they haven't lived out the practicalities of this, that I don't believe that we stop abortion by throwing women into jail. And that's what you do. If you call it murder, you're going to throw murderers in jail and maybe even give them the death penalty. And people go, oh, that's too extreme. Well, if you use the language of calling people murderers who do abortion, then you need to follow through on that language. And that means throw every woman in jail who's had an abortion and throw her in jail for life. And the people who are now free that are your friends, throw them in jail for life as well. Now, we're not going to do that, of course. So I look at this in the practical sense, that how can you stop abortion understanding that it's different in our culture and how it's been expressed? 
And I don't believe that that is a rational route to keeping people from having abortions. To me, instead, I, we have to find other ways of, you know, education, birth control, economic issues, good foster care, the best foster care, the best adoption procedures, work on all those things, and then look at the things that work to keep people from moving in that direction. And you can still decry abortion if you want. You can still, and I know even in talking about this, I might be offending. I don't have the ability to nuance all these areas that I'm not trying to call anybody bad or wrong in this situation. I'm just saying that that thing has been co-opted, and now some Christians are just like, to be a Christian, you have to vote for the person against abortion. And then I know those people, they don't care about abortion as far as the politician. They're just using it as a leverage piece. They're just using it to, their own lives don't express that. And so I believe Christians are being manipulated in that sense. Now, this could be all wrong. Someone could say, Doug, you're crazy, and they might, and someone's going to send me a negative email. And please don't, because I just get tired of that. You know, I'm, you can send it, but I'm not going to argue with you on these things. But the reality is I exist in the body of Christ. Now, I've acknowledged that other people who disagree with what I just said also exist in the body of Christ, and that Christ loves me and he loves them. And we must normalize that reality. And the idea that we're making some people have to suppress who they are and others will just boldly share everything they think. We need to understand that there is a percentage of Christians who feel differently than, than whoever that other person or you in a strong way. And it's also generational as well. And if we don't recognize that generational differences and if we don't just, if, you know, just discount it and say, well, they're all wicked and we're right, we're in trouble. So that's one of the ways, to me, I try to normalize it. Even putting myself out here, did I express that to try to change people's minds? Not really. Just to say there is an integrity to what I believe. It doesn't come from ignorance. It comes from how I view the world and who I am. And I'm not going to say for others they're not integrous in their beliefs. I don't go around attacking their beliefs. But there has to be a space where I can exist, and you know who I am, and they can exist, and I know who they are, and we can still love each other in the body of Christ and respect each other's political decisions. And until we do, we're not fully witnessing Christ in the world. This is why I wanted to have you on the show. This is really good. Um, because it, it begets something that flies completely in the face of the culture that says, declare and then convince. Right? Mm. It's like, no, you don't have to. What you should do is declare for sure. And and declaration of where you are is not done by telling people what you're against. It doesn't tell me anything. Like who are what are you for? Who are you? Mm -hmm. And and then you don't have to go out and convince people because I'm a big believer that truth resonates, truth penetrates, and it doesn't need defending. So if you declare something and you know that it's true and it's right and you do it because you know it's right, people are just gonna see it. You don't have to go browbeat them. You don't have to convince them mm -hmm. you don't have to recruit them over to your side um but that be that invites a, an opportunity for faith also because if you truly believe that it's right and true then it's going to resonate it's going to it's going to be out there it's going to radiate and if people don't want to listen to it it's not your job to go make them listen to it because mm -hmm. that, that stomp you know one of the five ethical precepts of counseling is autonomy yeah. it stomps on their autonomy it removes their liberty if you're if you're compelling them to believe what you believe um, that revokes their right to choose incorrectly. Mm -hmm. um, and then simultaneously, you better be open to feedback too, in case your truth isn't actually truth. That is so good. And, and I think, you know, I immediately think of, they talk about family dynamics, detached families and enmeshed families. And right. this might be an oversimplification, but enmeshed, 
everybody is in everybody's business. And often those families, everybody feels like they have to agree with one another for them to be okay. So they're fighting things out so that everybody can, you know, agree upon something. Detached families, they're just kind of, everybody's doing their own thing, you know, mm-hmm. just whatever. And it's fine. Let's just not bother each other. And uh, sometimes legalistic environments create enmeshed families where to be okay, everyone has to agree with dad, you know, everyone has to agree with mom. But to me, a healthy family is each person gets to be who they are. And I say that in our family, I'll say, you know, dad gets to be dad and, and Kaisa gets to be Kaisa and Anna gets to be Anna and Nathan gets to be Nathan and Sam gets to be Sam. And this is the same thing here. If we're going to come together, we have to know who people actually are. And so I have to facilitate environments where people can express who they are, even if they are in a place of where they're wrong, in a dangerous place. I don't want them to suppress that. And that's often what happens in legalistic environments. People suppress how they feel because they feel like they'll be rejected. And then they have no one to help them in the things that they're dealing with, the traumas that they're dealing with. I think we're seeing that as a large expression in the body of Christ. In order to, we have to all get along. Churches, we all have to agree the same thing. You know, the church needs a theology of conflict. To, to be okay, we all have to agree. And so so the people who don't want to disagree or ruin the family dynamic or get rejected, they just suppress those things. And others are trying to keep all the boundaries that keep us together. To be a part of this family, you got to believe for this and vote for this and do this and that. Uh, that creates really exaggerated communities. And we're seeing this, these polarized communities you even see this in the internet where people who came out of these very polarized far right expressions, now they are using the same dynamics in far left expressions, just as polarized, just as, you know, just as legalistic, but they have new, uh, <laughs> new content. I can even tell, I'm like, I know where this person came from. Just by listening to him, I go, I know this person must have been the son or the daughter of a denominational head of a Baptist church. Like I, I can tell it by the way they are reacting against that culture. So to me, we need to facilitate environments that make room for God and make room for people to be their authentic self and to be loved, like to be loved. I don't have to even understand you, and I can be like, I don't know how you came to that, but I'm a safe person, and I want to know what your views are on this, and I don't want to discount, well, that's because you're ignorant, less informed, less spiritual, all the things we do to try to belittle the fact that people are radically different. I mean, you know this, people are more different than we realize. <laughs> it's a myth. We don't see eye to eye. We don't see this. And so God's grace to me is just, I don't understand why you view things that way, but at least I'm going to facilitate an environment where I get to be here and you get to be here. And if someone's going to say, no, Doug, you don't get to be here because you've come to a different conclusion. Uh, I think that's pretty offensive that it only should be maybe a few things where you don't get to be here. Uh, you know, if someone hates Christ or, you know, but I can't make a huge list of what makes us a healthy family. And that's the family dynamic. A, a healthy family, there's only a few things you really unite around that make you a family, you know, just some basic, you know, love one another, those sorts of things. An unhealthy family, you have to agree on a hundred things in order for everyone to be okay. And now you just become lawgivers and law keepers in order to agree on those hundred things. And then there's one kid who's just silent at the table and says, I can't wait till I get out of here because I don't believe in a darn thing anyone is saying here. You know, <laughs> that's not what we want to do when it comes to a conflicted culture. I want to, I want to be mindful of time because I said, you know, about an hour or so and we're coming up on it. But I, I want to spend some time talking about the concept of love. Um, for me, love is, it's a verb. It's something we choose. Um, it's, it's not an emotion. I understand it's an emotional experience for some people. But as I understand emotions, as I teach them from 
Carol Lizard's research. Love is not one of them. It's a combination of emotions and thought. Um, and I understand the Greeks had you know, six words or nine words or whatever it is for love. Um, but, but the idea for me is that it's, it's something we enter into volitionally and, and on purpose. And it's not, it's not a reaction to stimulus. That would be, you know, something like lust or excitement maybe. Um, and it's definitely not supposed to be transactional. And I think it incorporates something to which you referenced earlier that is like, you see the human being, you, you look through the outward behaviors, the beliefs, the, the whatever it is, and you still love people for who God created them to be. And that can be very hard to do when their behaviors are offensive or harmful. I want to hear your perspective on what love is and maybe what it could be, um, mm. maybe what it should be. Well, you know, this is what I think about. Um, one third of the Bible is written in poetry. Hmm. And you don't write poetry if you want to be precise. <laughs> you write poetry when there's things you're trying to express that you just don't really have the words for. And there's an aspect of love that's like that. And I, I always want to be careful because I do process things and pull them apart but it's kind of like when you ask people who are going to get married or they've been married, you say, you know, tell me why you love that person. They, they almost can never give a good answer. And sometimes we'll make them feel bad. Well, you should have a good answer. It's like, no, there's something about love that. It's like that. There's a mystery in your hand. And if I were to say, well, well why do you love that? Well, I, if breaking it apart wouldn't make me understand it. Well, I love it because my hands touch her hands and we have these neurons and there's the <laughs> ligaments and the bones and the muscles. and the. Now, there might be these biological processes that occur, but if I started talking that way, no one in the room would feel more love. They would just feel like, ugh, you just ruined something. Now I'm going to be thinking about ligaments and neurons as I, by the way, some people are frustrated I even did that when they're holding their wife's hand. There's... There's a, a mystery. There's just, I just know. So love at some level is just relationship. Love is relationship. Love is a relationship where you can trust that your full personhood is loved and accepted. Uh, love. So to me, when I think about love of God is that God knows me and accepts me and loves me. Uh, and God knows me fully and wants me to fully know myself and to fully know him. And that if there is anything within me that is contrary to what God's desire for my life was or is, that he will reveal that to me as an expression of his love and his grace, not to harm me, not to hurt me, not to prove that he is God and I am not. And, uh, you know, so to me, love is understanding that we are made in the image of God, wonderfully made. And that when God made us, he said, very good. And he made us fruitful to multiply and have dominion. And that God is constantly trying to reclaim that image in us so that we live as full expressions, as emanations of God's beauty on earth. And then I get to enter into that and to help others as well as they want to be a full expression of what they were created to be. You know, that love love opens people love, like a loving person is if I go into the room, a loving person will expand my dreams, expand my sense of who I am. Give me room to breathe. Um, bring me with a closer to an understanding of God's goodness in my life and closer to an understanding that they are a safe person that will help me if I lose my way. 
And, uh, uh, you know, love also to me has to have grace that love is not, and this is like, you know, you talk about professions we've made pastoring and the mental health professions sometimes into taking a person as a car and taking their parts apart, you know, and seeing what's wrong and, (laughs) and looking at all those things. But I have a stronger sense of grace than ever that grace to me is I just don't know. And the more I know, the less I know. And so love for me is withholding what I feel like doing, which is judging that person. Like, why are you doing that? You know, like if I were you, I wouldn't do that. If I were you, I would go to church, you know, whatever that is. Or if I were you, I wouldn't be such a grumpy person or or even I wouldn't be depressed if I were you or anxious or whatever. And love is saying, I don't know. I'm not you. I haven't experienced your life. If there's health in me, it's a gift from God. So the last thing I'd want to do is use it as to judge others. And instead, I'm going to take my most healthy self, pour it out into someone else's life that needs that health, and have grace in this. It doesn't mean I don't say this is what I think you should do or this is what I'd like. But in the end, I just have to trust that God knows and God understands and God is our judge that I'm not, you know, so, you know, again, it's nebulous as I'd express that to you, but I, I, you know, when people get into, well, this is what the Greek thing of love is. Well, what, regardless of what the Greeks say, you know, God's not Greek, right? (laughs) You know, that was their best attempt to write that down. Uh, Love's relationship. That's why we have stories. Why, Why is the Bible full of poetry and stories? It's not, we turn the stories into teachings and points, Mm -hmm. but God was like, let me just tell you some stories. Yeah, the, the Here's metaphors. a story about how I love David, right? Yeah, not the same thing. It's yeah. even the stories are an expression that love can't be, you know, broken apart. Yeah, I appreciate that. Hey, so how do we then tell truth in love, right? If love is mm-hmm. sounding very, you know, non-attached and meeting people where they are, but but yet there's this great desire, like, whoa, you're going on the wrong path, or this thing that I need done needs advocating for in the community or in my profession. You know, how do we tell truth in love while being deferential? Well, and this is where I'll probably get a little spiritual in the sense of like for people who don't have this kind of faith expression, this is how I do it, is I believe that I'm spirit led and that the Holy Spirit uh, speaks to me and leads me. And so it depends on the person and the situation. And uh, so I will pray and I will ask, should I say something now or should I wait? And I think all of us kind of know that and whether people call it their intuitiveness I think of a story my father told me about, he had a brother, an older brother who was an alcoholic and really lived a tough life. You know, he was an alcoholic, but he also did terrible things associated with his struggle with alcohol. And my dad would be like, you know, I need to just go tell him what's wrong, right? He would always be like, you know, I'm just tired of it. And he would drive up to his house and get ready to give that speech. You know, and it would all be true, true stuff, like things the guy's doing. You're ruining your life, you're endangering people's life. And he'd get there and instead he would just love on his brother. He'd listen and he'd love him. And he'd care for him. And it doesn't mean that other people weren't supposed to give those messages, but that wasn't what my dad was supposed to do. And later his brother uh, was saved and became, you know, uh, a recovering alcoholic, you know, didn't, uh, a wonderful story, lots of pain in that, but a wonderful story. And he said to my dad, he said, you know, when you visited me, he said, I knew what I was doing wrong, but I didn't know I was loved. And that hit me. Like he said, I, I knew, and that's so true. People can probably tell us even, you know, they suppress, in Romans it says we suppress the knowledge of God. That's why we are accountable because we actually suppress it. We know that we're created beings made in the image of God. 
uh, we know God's divine power in what's been created in us, and we suppress that knowledge. So a way for that knowledge not to be suppressed is to provide an environment where people are loved. So truth and love would be that one, why am I motivated? Has God told me to say this? And that's hard. And I get it. You know, I, I don't, I don't know. You know, just, this is the goal. I'm trying to honor God in this. And then the other one is that in close relationships that the person, I know that I've genuinely loved that person. They, I want them to know that I love them. They don't always maybe know that, but I know that I've genuinely loved them. And what I'm saying now and doing now comes from that. And as a pastor, I've had to, I've had to write letters to people I love and say, you are on you know, the road to hell in the sense of you're going to destroy your family. You're going to destroy your kids. If you don't, you know, you know, infidelities and, and, and where you, you, you know, you've dealt with someone who's just in that place of chaos and you say, you are not in a good place. Um, the path you're headed down is going to destroy generations and you, but they know that you've loved them up to this point and they know that you're going to love them after this point. So to me, that's how the truth and love comes from. It's the motivation. Uh, and, you know, so spirit led and relationally driven. Yeah, and we would refer to that in our profession as rapport, right? If, if it's yeah. a client and we're, you know, some of our clients, patients, um, trying to be more cognizant about saying patient because I think that that puts us back under the medical umbrella and gets us taken more seriously for reimbursement rates and so forth. But, um, but our, uh, you know, our, our people that we serve, uh, sometimes we're the only ones who ever love them, you know, compassionately, mm-hmm. non-judgmentally, unconditionally. And, and if you do that enough, you know, several sessions, then you can go, are you out of your mind? <laughs> like, uh, what are you, right. what are you doing? Um, you know, I love you enough to say this and I'm not going to kick you out of the door. Right. Well, don't they test you too? that people also, because I often have to realize that people, if they're angry at God, if I love them, they'll express that anger towards me Hundred percent. and that I, that's a part of it. So they are seeing you say God loves me. Well, let's see if you love me after I say this to you. Let's see if you love me after I respond this way. And then I have to realize they are actually treating me like, like God, I get to be that go between intermediary that points them to God that yes, I'm going to love you, even though you just swore at me and you know, spoke poorly about my profession and my calling and whatever. But you, and then you build that trust. They're like, Oh, my fight isn't with you anymore. Or in the way. yeah, that's good. Yeah. It's, it's one of the, the, the greatest honors we can have, I think, is when people dump on us because it means that they trust us not to violate them, become mean, abandon them. You know, they they inherently believe we're safe. You know, we're a safe place to go with that stuff, even if it's yeah. horrible things that they're saying. Well, I'll tell people with divorce that like sometimes the divorced parent that's more involved in the life of the kids will get all the garbage from the kids. The kids yep. will yell at them and, th- and then they'll think, what am I doing wrong? And I'm saying they trust that you won't leave them. So it's hard, but the fact that they're taking everything out on you is they know they don't have to be in a good place to be loved by you. But with the other spouse or parent, they're worried. They're worried that if they say and do the wrong thing, they'll see even less of them or they won't be accepted. So that's the, the sad reality is sometimes the fruit of being gracious and kind and loving is you get more difficult interactions with yep. people because that's a safe environment. Oh, absolutely. Man, it's been so good. Thank you. Um, you know, I respect your time. I want to let you go. Plus, you know, oh, I'll talk forever. I had a two-hour show. I love it. So I, you have to just make me shut up eventually. So this is great. Well, really, I just have to go go pee. <laughs> My bladder's full. But uh, it, we we got to do this again sometime. So love uh, it. thank you. It's been awesome. And I'm glad we connected. And um, I'm really, really happy. I, I think this has been going to be a great gift to a lot of people. 
And um, hey, I want to tell you the work you do is invaluable, and uh, I appreciate that. And facilitating environments like this is just, I want to encourage you. Uh, well, you know this, but I need you to hear it from me that your work has value in the doing, regardless of the outcomes that you see, whether you're, it, you know, it just has value in the doing. And just remember that when you don't see the fruit you want to see, because we all get that. Remember what you do has value in the doing and God sees that and he's pleased with you. Thank you. Um, I needed that reminder. Yeah. Thank you. Um, huh, wow. I appreciate that. So, you know, where, where do people get a hold of you? How do, how do they follow you? Uh, this is my sales pitch time. Okay, I want people to do, know this because I am excited about it. In April, I've got a book coming out called Posting Peace, Why Social Media Divides Us and What uh, We Can Do About It or You Can Do About It. I guess, I guess you should learn the title for that. Um, and then uh, also there's another book, The Community of God, that talks about a lot of these being human and community stuff that, I, that you can find as well at Amazon. Uh, you can go to fairlyspiritual.org. That's my website, fairlyspiritual.org. And I have the Fairly Spiritual Show podcast that I sometimes post regularly and sometimes I forget to, but that's where you can go to find more of my verbal self. Well, on behalf of our family here at Naga Notes and Zephyr Wellness, uh, we appreciate your time. Pastor Doug Bursch, that's B-U-R-S-C-H. Uh, on Twitter and Instagram. Oh, that's right. Yeah. By the way, my name's, it's like Bush beer with an R. Uh, fairly spiritual is, uh, my Twitter handle and, uh, you can just search fairly spiritual and you'll, you'll find me right on. Well, thanks brother. Appreciate it. On behalf of all of us here. Um, we wish you all great mental and spiritual wellness. Thank you to you as well. 